Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So anyway, we're going to start now with the Beatles' next single, which was released on February 13th, 1967, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Like a previous couple singles, it was a double A-side, but this one is different. It is widely believed the to be, at least at the time, the most important single ever released as of 1967 and the best. And now that may have changed over time. It does still sound like a kind of insane and bold claim. So I want to talk about a bit why it has this reputation before I get to the actual specifics of the song. So first of all, people had rarely seen two such strong songs paired together. We talked earlier about the double A-side idea. The idea that prior to the existence of the double A side, which the Beatles may have invented, you had an A side single that was supposed to be a hit and a B side that was not even good enough to make it onto an album. And now the Beatles had for a couple of years been putting out these songs where they sort of believed either song could be the hit. And usually, often, both songs were the hit. In the case of uh, Day Tripper and uh, We Can Work It Out, for example, both songs were the hit. That's probably Can I ask most- a question? Yeah, of course. About the, about the double A side? Yeah. Were they intentionally. Or I guess consistently such different songs. Like um Penny Lane and what was the name of the other one? Strawberry um, Fields. Strawberry Fields. Like those are very markedly different songs to yes. listen to. Well was that they are was musically, that, yes, yes. 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 Are they was that always an something that they intentionally did when they would yeah. do a double A side? Yeah. They'd have like yeah. very so, stark and strong. So if you uh, if you remember Day Tripper and we can work it out. Those are very different songs as well, right? One is one of the louder and faster rock songs the Beatles had ever recorded up to that point. And the other is a song that is a soft ballad that briefly turns into a waltz. So, you know, that was a deliberate choice. And I think this was also a deliberate choice. However, as I will uh, get to in a second, they are musically different. Yes. There's a notable similarity in the lyrics. So the the next notable thing here is, of course, that these are, along with Tomorrow Never Knows from Revolver, the most forward-thinking recordings the Beatles had yet made, and were definitely among the most forward-thinking recordings and singles, obviously, that had been released to the general public. Arguably, only the Beach Boys and the Birds had previously released anything as daring as singles, and whereas the Birds had merely incorporated Indian music and some free jazz in their sound, the Beach Boys... And the Beatles were using, were doing the whole studio as an instrument thing, which is coming, going to become a prominent theme as we go. Essentially, incorporating musical techniques from the avant-garde uh, form of high art music called music concrete that has had been evolving in the last twenty years from Austria and France. And if you compare this with Good Vibrations, which had come out a few months earlier, which was the first ever, I should mention. If I haven't talked about Good Vibrations before, Good Vibrations is arguably the first ever suite as single. So it contains multiple musical movements stuffed into a like two and a, or three and a half minute pop song in a way that no one had ever really done before. But these songs are aggressively weirder than Good Vibrations. Good Vibrations is still very, very catchy. It has been influenced by film music, and, arguably, and it definitely is a revolutionary recording, but like it's, it's revolutionary recording 
is not quite as boldly on its face as these two Beatles songs. And then I think you could make the case, though I, I, I have obviously said more than once that I don't think the Beatles lyrics are always the greatest part of their uh, contributions. I think it's safe to say that the, the lyrics here are perhaps a little higher quality than certainly the lyrics of Eight Miles High and, and, and also Good Vibrations. The other thing that, that you were hinting at uh, or that you, you sort of made me dance around there, Dave, is that uh, this is also the first time that two, song, two strong songs have been included on a single when they were literally about the same thing. So both songs, though they sound very different musically, are about the exact same thing lyrically, which is that it's both John Lennon's memories of childhood and Paul McCartney's memories of childhood. Not only was this a weird thing for a pop song to be about in the 1960s, though it was getting more common, but also the fact that they had both written songs about it and decided to pair them together was like, as a single, was essentially unheard of. It hadn't happened before, as far as I know. And so that makes, in some ways, the contrast of the two songs even, even more stark in terms of their music, because they are about the same thing. And it is if you ever want to like look at John Lennon and Paul McCartney and see how different they were from a uh, musical's perspective in particular, and also lyrically, you can look at this single and really starkly see the difference between the two songwriters, even though you could argue that both of these are, are among their most interesting Beatles songs. I, I know which one I like more, but like it's still interesting contrast and perhaps the most effective contrast in the history of the band because they were writing for once. They were both, aside from in the early days when they were just writing about love and dancing, they were writing about the same thing. So Strawberry Fields was recorded in two or three different versions uh, at two separate tempos in two separate keys. And arguably in George Martin's most famous act as a producer, and really George em- uh, Jeff Emmerich, rather, Jeff Emmerich's most famous act as an engineer, though it's been attributed to George Martin, they sped up the slower song and they slowed down the faster one so they matched keys, taking the song at a traditional pitch. Now, I mentioned previously that George Martin had done this with John Lennon's voice a couple times, specifically on Rain, the B-side to um, Payback Writer, and also on uh, I'm Only Sleeping. But in this case, they did it to the whole song in both the two different recordings because they had these two different uh, tempos. whole recording was spliced together in different pieces because the pieces were not whole songs. And if you really, really are interested in the evolution of this bizarre, it doesn't sound bizarre to anyone who's heard it a million times, but bizarre recording to anyone who heard it for the first time, there's actually different iterations of it on the Beatles anthology too. And you can hear the, the parts of the song at different paces and, and you can see parts of how it was assembled you can't see the whole thing and and i bet actually on youtube probably someone has broken somebody's broken it down but it was more constructed the only other song that had been this constructed uh through tape manipulation in the beatles catalog was tomorrow never knows to come on a revolver and this was of course a brand new thing good vibrations was also constructed there were a few things on frank zappa's debut album that were constructed together but like this was literally the second single in pop music history that had been 
spliced together in this way so aggressively and obviously. The finished product begins with a chorus rather than a verse and also uses a Mellotron. If you don't know what a Mellotron is, it was the world's second sampler. The first one was something called a Chamberlain, which has been used a lot less frequently. And it's a keyboard that played tape loops, specifically of orchestral instruments and human voices, depending on which setting you use. Also, there's a guitar setting, there's some other settings. It had been used by the Beatles on Tomorrow Never Knows and by a few other bands earlier, but this was the first time it had made it onto a single. If you ever listen to an older song and hear what sounds like cheesy strings or something, it's probably a Mellotron. It's probably someone playing a keyboard of tapes of strings. Can I ask another question about production for Absolutely. Uh, the song? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, since I'm such a cool guy, I was listening to the music with headphones on, because yeah. that's probably the way you should appreciate a stereo recording. And one thing I definitely noticed, which is kind of weird for production overall, the drums were panned to stereo left. Yeah. Was that... Like, it's something that just kind of struck me as weird. Was that something to do with the psychedelia? So I have, I have something very scandalous to tell you. The original okay. stuff's all in mono. Oh. So you were listening to a stereo remaster. Then I must have been, yeah. 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 Well, that just ruined that point. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Way to go, Riley. I thought you had something really cool there, and now it turns out you don't. It's just like... <laughs> I mean, I could be misremembering, but my my memory is that everything was in mono initially because of the uh, because of the state of the UK recording industry at the time. But like, I believe when they remastered them in stereo, Paul McCartney was involved in it, uh, as, as far as memory serves. If it does that now, it's presumably on purpose. Though he okay. didn't, he of course didn't write this song. He he was heavily involved in the creation of it. So. It also contains numerous instruments that are fairly unrecognizable because of the changes in the speed of the tape and the fact that many of them have been recorded and then turned around backwards. It phased out with a false ending and then completely different bit of noise comes in with drums and a backwards Mellotron, which gave birth to the Paul is Dead hoax. John Lennon is saying cranberry sauce. However, it's played backwards, and that's where you get the beginning of the Paul McCartney is Dead. I'm going to briefly quote Alan Pollock and then you can. Uh, Ask away again. The use of tape speed variations, up-close miking, limiting, playing tapes backwards, the inclusion of instruments and instrumental groups that are not conspicuously non uh, that are conspicuously non-rock in their primary association, strange chord progressions, and surprising changes in meter. All these things have their precedence on Revolver or its related singles. But the irony is that they are presented here in Strawberry Fields Forever in creative extensions such that you would you never feel as if the Beatles are merely repeating themselves. Also. There's a kitchen sink presentation of so many of these tricks in a single number that is prior to Strawberry Fields quite unprecedented. I don't know what's ironic about it. I think he uses irony incorrectly there, but otherwise, the point being that it's as if all the all the different things they were doing on Revolver are condensed into one couple minute song, which is kind of drastic and radical. So Strawberry Fields, for me anyway, is one of their landmark recordings. And the fact that it was a single makes it all the crazier. So the second, the B-side, possibly, the second part of the single is a totally different approach, though arguably nearly as innovative. Mm-hmm. 
Penny Lane is a much more straightforward song on the surface. Certainly, it doesn't sound particularly off uh, compared with Strawberry Fields. It's it's not like it's they didn't and screw up the pitch. But there are all sorts of odd devices used for it as well. For one thing, there are something like six separate pianos on the recording, at which at least one of which was recorded through a guitar amp. The song features various instruments coming in and out of the mix, representing different sounds from Paul McCartney's memory. It also features a prominent brass arrangement highlighted by a piccolo trumpet solo. This was an idea that came from Paul McCartney and shows his underappreciated knack for musical parody. He has claimed it was a deliberate parody of Bach rather than an homage. And there will be more of that as we move along. McCartney's uh, satire slash parody thing will become more and more frequent as the Beatles uh, get a little more mature. As was often the case, McCartney's song contained nearly as many innovative ideas. However, in this case, you could argue they're better hidden in Penny Lane. They're less overt than in Strawberry Fields. The contrast between the two songs is startling, despite the song's thematic elements in common, which I was sort of making that point earlier. Though it might be absurd, I think you can also see the birth of the art rock, progressive rock dichotomy in this recording. Now, I'm going a little over the top here, but I'm still going to try and make a little bit of a point. On the one hand, you have a song that embraces modern poetry, modern art in terms of impressionism, new recording techniques in an obvious look-at-me way, essentially the oral equivalent of the French New Wave, which is a film movement that was trying to show you how films were made rather than hiding the editing, and also non-traditional forms of music, music concrete, Indian music, while staying in the traditional pop song length. You can sort of, that's sort of what art rock is. On the other side, you have a song that hides its recording innovations behind appeals to more traditional non-rock music, tries to tell a story in a more straightforward manner, and embraces virtuoso musicianship. In this case, the piccolo trumpet solo was played by an established classical musician. Now, I think a story feels much closer to what ha- happened to art rock in the 70s than Penny Lane is to prog rock in the 70s, but still, there's sort of an aesthetic difference. And as someone who, who is way too obsessed with both of those genres, I, I I don't know, I see sort of the origins of that divide a little bit. Anyway, I, I think this is like certainly among their most notable recordings, especially given that it's just a single and that both of these songs were hits. And so the whole world heard them in a way that maybe they didn't with Tomorrow Never Knows, right? Even though millions of people bought Revolver, you had to buy Revolver, Tomorrow Never Knows. It wasn't on the radio for a long time until many, many years later, whereas these songs were on the radio and were number one hits. So five months later, Four months later, rather, we have the release of the Beatles' most famous, infamous album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was released on June 1st, 1967, and thereby inaugurating, inaugurating the summer of love. There have been few albums written about more than Sgt. Pepper. It was at the time considered one of the most revolutionary pieces of music ever recorded because of the recording techniques, but also the sequencing as the album ran straight through with no breaks on vinyl. And it featured a reprised song at the end, which, you know, uh, the first, the opening song was reprised as the second last song, which has become, of course, a giant trope throughout popular music, but at the time had never been done before. It has been hailed by many people as one of the greatest albums of all time. It has also been attacked as the pillar of 60s excess by, you might call like punk influence music critics, some of whom believe the Beatles ruined rock and roll. Of less importance to all that, it was also the first Beatles album to finally be correctly reproduced when it was released in the U.S. In the U.S. So Revolver was 
almost properly reproduced in the U.S. It was actually, there was a revolver in the U.S. It still had, I think, one substitution or two substitutions. Sgt. Pepper, when Sgt. Pepper came out in the U.S., it was the British album as well. It's the first time that happened. So Sgt. Pepper is the Beatles, I don't know, seventh record or something like that, or eighth, I think. And it took them that long to get it right, which is just goes to show you the state of the music industry at the time. It was initially conceived by Paul McCartney as a response to Pet Sounds, which gives birth to the whole Beatles versus Beach Boys argument. Sgt. Pepper shows the complete embrace of the recording studio as instrument approach that had been making its way into the Beatles' work, and it also shows McCartney, McCartney's growing dominance as a composer. On the non-musical side, the album also has one of the most interesting cover images for an album up to that point, containing cardboard cutouts of over 70 real people, including the Beatles, twice. The Beatles had gotten way more interesting with the Revolver cover. I think I forgot to talk about that. The Revolver cover shows the Beatles many, many times in sort of a collage. Sgt. Pepper was an aggressive, aggressive, weird cover. And helping to sort of, even though psychedelia, psychedelic music had existed for over a year, this helped launch this whole trend of psychedelic album covers. I would say it's not the Beatles' best set of songs. I think Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Abbey Road are all better. And it's hardly their most consistent album. It's also, in my feelings, not their most impressive. However, it is one of the most innovative albums ever made in terms of um, recording techniques. And I think you could argue that it was the second or third most innovative rock album up until that time, behind either only Frank Zappa's Absolutely Free or the Velvet Underground's debut album. And if Absolutely Free has ever been surpassed as the most innovative album, it was by We're Only In It For The Money, Zappa's next album, which parodied Sgt. Pepper, at least on its sleeve. And the thing about the Velvet Underground and Frank Zappa is that nobody listened to them. So, you know, the Velvet Underground's influence took years to diffuse, and Frank Zappa was always too weird. He was a cult act for most of his career. He had a couple hit singles, and they were like top 40 hits. But the Beatles, of course, were not like that. The Beatles released an album that went to number one and everyone bought. And and so even if you want to argue that the Velvet Underground anticipated things, uh, what would happen 10 years later, much better than the Beatles did, or you want to argue that Zappa's musical innovations were more radical, nobody was listening to them. And everybody was listening to the Beatles. And I think... Impact counts for something. Yeah. And I think a big part of the Beatles' genius, if I can use that term, is the ability to combine musical revolution with extremely commercially viable music. So, though I wouldn't argue that Sgt. Pepper was the most innovative album of the 1960s, it was arguably the most innovative album to hit number one. And certainly, I don't remember how many millions of copies it sold, but the most innovative album to sell that many copies. So, I guess we'll start with the first song, which is, in many ways, the least, one of the least interesting on the record, which is the title track which starts off the album's concept by introducing the, the band, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It begins with crowd noise, the first time, I believe, an album that wasn't live ever started with like... So I should mention that it was a regular practice in the 1960s and possibly earlier to create fake live albums where you recorded in a studio and added crowd noise and then sold it as a live at some club. There's actually a fairly famous jazz album from like 1965 that was recorded that way. However... This is the first time I know of officially studio album, including piped in crowd noise as like a fake concert. The orchestra also tunes up, which is a thing that was perhaps 
used a little bit in higher classical music that was getting more and more postmodern, but not again in uh, pop music. And uh, both of these things would become extremely overused devices thanks to the Beatles, which I guess is one reason why music critics think the Beatles, some be- people think the Beatles killed rock and roll. It's also one of the two most clearly, or three most clearly, rock songs on uh, the album featuring uh, the lead guitar from Paul McCartney, who was the grittiest of the guitarists. It is also one of the most straightforward. So let's just listen to the opening. So that that's you know gives you both an idea of the weird, not traditional uh, opening using crowd noise and the orchestra tuning up, and then of course instead of an orchestra, you get a sort of jagged uh, lead guitar part from Paul McCartney. The next track is far and away the most famous song from the album, not due to the Beatles, but rather due to the cover uh, by Joe Cocker that became the theme song for the Wonder Years, and that is with a little help from my friends. It is distinct for being the only uh, standard that Ring of Star ever sang. It has, of course, been covered many, many, many times. In fact, I think nowhere near as much as um, yesterday, but certainly it's one of the most covered songs in, in their catalog. It's in the form of a call and response, but it contains the usual Beatles tricks with the verse and chorus. It is notably only one of three songs in the entire concept to actually fit in the concept. So Paul McCartney created this elaborate concept and it lasts two songs and then the reprise or reprise. Ringo Starr is introduced as Billy Shears at the end of the title track. And then uh, after, after with a little help from my friends ends, there's no more reference basically to this concept at all for the rest of the record, which is, I think definitely a p- thing you should criticize it for. It's, it's funny to me that they, you know, they went to all this trouble and then, like, they just didn't worry about it for the rest of it. Like the, like, I don't even know how you're supposed to believe that uh, that the rest of it is 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 part of the same concert. It is notably for being just one of the most straightforward songs on the album. It is also notable because it was written uh, primarily by Paul McCartney, and it is a little more serious than some of his his his. You know, a lot of his writing can be, he, he has even actually written a song defending his writing as silly little love songs. So the first two songs are, 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 are not really where the innovation lies. But then um, we have the next song. Picture yourself in a boat on a river. So that is, of course, We'll see in the sky with diamonds, popularly assumed to be some kind of hint about LSD use, but it really was based on Julian Lennon's drawing, believe it or not. Somebody apparently owns the actual picture that he drew of some girl named Lucy in a sky with some diamonds. The song has extremely unusual instrumentation, including a tambura, uh, an Indian instrument that George Harrison had learned how to play, as well as something called a Lowry organ, which is a, a different organ compared to a lot of the usual uh, organs. That was actually the Lowry organ you heard opening it that had a different sound than the Hammond, which was the most common at the time. Um, there's actually, a, a, there would be a few 
organs taking off in the psychedelic era different from the Hammond and and drastically sort of with, with like vaguely Eastern sounds, the other one being the Farfisa, though the, it's the Lowry here. The, the song features backing tracks with all sorts of noises, including distorted vocals and samples of other instruments. It's in two separate time signatures in the verse and chorus that was becoming a very common Beatles trick. The verses are about as psychedelic as you can find, but the chorus is much more traditional sounding. It's also worth noting the bass part is different on every section of the song, which is more of a traditional Beatles innovation where they would play around with that stuff all the time. And, and it's also, despite never been released as a single, it's become one of the more famous songs from the record for, I think just because it was record, uh, released on the Greatest Hits record, but I guess maybe it also got uh, some radio play just because people like it. That is the sound of Getting Better, the fourth track, which is also elaborately produced, but much more straightforward musically than Lucy in the Sky with Evans. It features lyrics by both songwriters, which was really, really rare, and also why they are starkly different from each other. Uh, John Lennon's lyrics are uh, about spousal abuse, again, for the, at least the second time in the catalog, which is great. Paul McCartney's are much more upbeat, as you would expect. The recording is extremely dense, and the backing track changes constantly even though the arrangement seems fairly sparse. And you, if you're listening to it and not paying much attention, you might think that it's actually uh, not a lot of overdubs, but there's all sorts of weird stuff going on in the background. Up next is Fixing a Hole, which stands up for the rest of the album because it was pretty much recorded live in the studio, just about, which is just absolutely, completely different from everything else they were doing at the time. It was absolutely a rarity for them. And it's one of the most straightforward Beatles songs of the era. However, that doesn't mean it's conventional, as it features a harpsichord, played by George Martin, and some other unconventional musical elements for 1967. It is essentially written as a jazz song, but the bridge is in a march. Now, there are some people who claim that getting better and fixing a whole continuous story that began with little help from my friends, but I think that's really silly and people are really stretching and trying to do work to make it seem like the concept didn't fall apart. I think it's really sort of fruitless and I, I don't understand why people do this. The next track is, is also just very out of character with everything else on the record. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. So that is She's Leaving Home. And another social comment song in the mode of Eleanor Rigby, again, mostly written by Paul McCartney. The Beatles once again did not play instruments on it, much like Eleanor Rigby. Paul McCartney and John Lennon sing. Paul McCartney sings the lead part. And uh, John Lennon sings multiple backing vocals. It features a fairly conventional string arrangement that wasn't composed by George Martin because he was actually on vacation, I believe, when it was written, though he did supposedly conduct it. But it, of course, features 
possibly at that point the most prominent harp part in popular music, given that the song is driven by a harp, which was just really weird. And certainly the Beatles had never done anything like this before, where they'd used a non-rock instrument as as essentially driving force of the song. Also, lyrically, is one of the most complex songs the Beatles ever wrote, as it is in the form of Greek chorus. Now that is maybe damning with faint praise a little bit. They were, as I've said before, maybe not the most sophisticated lyric writers, certainly in comparison to their idol or John Lennon's idol, Bob Dylan. But it is notable for being a real story song in a way that they really didn't do before. And, uh, and the fact that the backing vocals sort of comment on the action is not something I think they ever did before or since. And the harp is just, I don't know. It's just very, it makes, it makes it sound very, very distinct and certainly different from everything else on the album. And that makes, of course, the fact that it is a vocal, a string section and a harp makes it a very, very different song than the next track, which is arguably one of the most sophisticated or complicated things they had ever recorded. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the walls. Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite is, like I said, one of the most complex recordings for the album, featuring numerous recordings of organs and quote-unquote mouth organs or harmonicas. John Lennon was apparently unhappy with the sound of the recording, and at one point, Jeff Emmerich chopped up the, the tapes and threw them in the air and re-spliced them. And that's where you get the random noises in the bridge. It creates a car- carnivalesque sound, which is what John Lennon was looking for, is one of the earlier applications of John Cage's concept of indeterminacy in popular music, which of course would have a really get into things with uh, Brian Eno and David Bowie in the late seventies. But in this case, it was much uh, sort of more haphazard and just like, uh, okay, we'll just do it. Who knows if they'd even heard of John Cage. The music is based around a trio of different kinds of harmonicas or sorry, not a trio, a quintet, and swirling keyboard organs. And uh, of course, is in some kind of like sort of almost like polka time. And it's just really, really out there. It's not very long. I think it's forgotten because it's so aggressively weird, but it is really, really out there. I would strongly recommend listening to the whole thing all the time. Not all the time, but at least to get some idea of, of how weird they were getting. Because the bridge in particular is just really, really strange. I don't know. To me, it's one of the more notable pieces on the record, even though as a song, it's maybe not the best because, of course, it's just about a circus. But it is, it is really aggressively strange and still yet somehow manages to be, you know, a two and a half minute catchy song, which is, uh, I guess, as I said before, sort of like the thing the Beatles were really, really good at is, is somehow managing to to combine those two things.
that is George Harrison's most famous piece of Indian music. I think it's safe to say, Within You, Without You, his sole contribution to the album. The, the second piece of Indian music he'd written for the Beatles after Revolver. He had written a second piece for Sgt. Pepper called Only a Northern Song, which is some people think is one of their worst songs ever, but they were, uh, it was scrapped. And it actually does feature later on in this podcast when we will talk about it because it was released on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. Within You Without You was originally 30 minutes long, written for the harmonium. And, and so this is a bit of a you know, Beatles minutia thing. No one really cares, but George Harrison did not play the keyboards much at all. In fact, if you watch Get Back, you can see him struggling to play. I believe it's an organ in it. It was a piano. Uh, he's struggling and he's trying to get lessons from John Lennon and Billy Preston. But he had started play, fooling around with them, and he actually wrote this on. Uh, if you don't know what a harmonium is, it's a keyboard. It's a pump organ. So one hand plays the keyboard, and the other hand moves um, a, a bellows in and out, like almost like an accordion. Um, but it, you sit with it rather than have it strapped on your chest. So they were, you know, getting really, really out there. But I, I guess he was encouraged to uh, shorten it down, like yesterday, and like his other Indian music. On Revolver, this is basically a solo piece. It features Indian musicians arranged and conducted by Harrison in India, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, actually, no, they hadn't been. I don't know if they've been in India yet, so I should I should walk that back. But one of the impressive things is that he apparently wrote it in Indian musical script. He, I guess, which he learned, I guess, from Ravi Shankar. I don't know, um, which is kind of impressive. And then the song is backed by a string arrangement, much like the string arrangement on She's Leaving Home. But this time, this one was actually written by George Martin and also conducted by him. I think it's a better string arrangement, personally, but there's still, it's been a year, basically, since Revolver came out, and the Beatles were still the only Western band to attempt to record actual Indian music on their records. There, there were other bands attempting to do a little bit of it, you know, no one was really going this aggressively um, into it as the Beatles were still to this point. And for better or worse, right? Like, I think there are lots of people. I know when I was growing up and first listening to Sgt. Pepper, I had friends who thought this was far and away uh, the worst song on the album. I don't feel that way, but I can, I understand it. The next track is When I'm 64, which is another of Paul McCartney's increasingly common forays into old-timey British music. Though this one he actually wrote a very long time ago. Apparently he wrote it at age 16, so the myth goes. But this was becoming a common thing. In fact, when we get to the White Album, they'll be all over the damn place. And also, actually, on Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, the song sounds conventional, but it contains a clarinet trio, which was certainly a weird device. I don't know how many clarinet trios there were out there. And the, the recording sped up just slightly to make Paul McCartney sound like he was a teenager, which is interesting. I sort of always assumed that that was just his vocal range because he has a pretty impressive one, but no, it was sped up. It does stand out like a sore thumb on this record, I, I think it's safe to say. Even though it wasn't recorded live in the studio like when I'm like um, fixing a hole, I think this one honestly sounds the least innovative probably as a, as a recording. <laughs> 
but it does give you an idea of where he was starting to go as a songwriter, uh, like I said, for good or ill. And then, of course, we're back to Psychedelia with the next track. Lily Rita is, of course, very different from its predecessor. It contains far more in the way of the obvious experimentation of the rest of the album, rather than the subtleties of a clarinet trio. It features panting backing vocals, possibly the first time in popular music, unfortunately, uh, that people decide to pr- imitate sex on a record. And uh, it also features combs with paper, which is a weird uh, trick. And it features a piano modified to vary in the out of tune, again showing the influence of John Cage, a, who used to alter his pianos as well. It is the first thing to arguably resemble any kind of conventional rock music since Fixin' a Hole, which was like track three, right? Track three, track four, I think track three. So, oh, five, track five, my apologies. So, you know, there's a stretch there of, uh, of four songs that are arguably very far from what you would think of as Beatles songs, at least based on everything up through Rubber Soul. Good morning is an unconventional time signature. There are different rhythms throughout and also bizarre animal noises. It features both an unconventional rhythm and samples like crazy. The idea with the animal noises was apparently to arrange them so that the next one could eat the previous one. The method is followed until the chicken, which transforms into the lead guitar of the next song, the lead guitar part of the next song. This is, I think, as far as I know, the first time a sample was edited into the tape of a recorded instrument in studio. I don't know. It's really hard to know that. At least in popular music, you could probably say but it's possible that it was done before. This song sounds relatively less radical than a lot of stuff on here because it is recognizable as a rock song. But I think along with being for the benefit of Mr. Kite and the final track, which I'm going to spend some time talking about, I think you could argue that Good Morning is one of the most revolutionary uses of the studio here because of the dense, the weird saxophone part, which is super heavily manipulated and the weird animal samples eating each other. You're in, I'm still you're, trying to wrap my head around the weird animal samples eating each other. That's, yeah. that's that that that's weird. It is weird, and it's just and, in this like it's just in this like two and a half minute song. Why not? <laughs> I mean, and like that's me saying something's weird. Yeah, yeah, that's saying yeah. something. Yeah, that's weird. It is saying something. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird. So the Breedles brought in the reprise, uh, reprise, however you want to pronounce it, from musical theater or opera, or perhaps from the art song suite. To my knowledge, it had not been used in rock music previously, on an album anyway. It has since become, of course, a convention for anyone attempting to have some kind of serious album-like statement where they intend some kind of broad concept or narrative. The track differs from the original, uh, the opening track because there's a key change which helps move the album from Good Morning, Good Morning to A Day in the Life.
know this is something the Beatles have been doing for since their first album, uh, or at least their second album. So it's really not that different from the past. However, this is the first time it feels like it's to some greater purpose. Of course, not really because the concept had fallen apart by this point, right? Nobody believes they're attending a concert at this point, I don't think. Lastly, we have, I think, the most interesting and forward-thinking song. And just like with Revolver, the Beatles left it for the final track. It is actually two songs, or song fragments, written separately by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and then stitched together. Somewhat like what would happen with Strawberry Fields, only this time they weren't sped up and slowed down. They were actually just physically stitched together. It would become a common practice for the Beatles on both Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album. If you've never heard A Day in the Life, I would strongly recommend listening to the whole thing, but we will play a little bit of it. Lennon's lyrics are from newspapers, just as he had gotten the lyrics from Tomorrow Never Knows from a book and the lyrics from Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite from a poster. Uh, He was starting to choose weird places to get his lyrics from. And Paul McCartney's are more in line with what he wrote in Penny Lane, only it's about just getting up and going to work. The songs are in two separate keys, which was a problem. The spaces between the two pieces were originally filled by Beatles assistant Mal Evans counting. Paul McCartney eventually came up with the idea of using the orchestra to fill it in, but Noe seemed to be able to figure it out how to do it. George Martin then wrote the lowest note for each instrument in the orchestra on the score, and then he wrote the highest, connecting the two with a squiggly line. The result was an atonal ascent, which has become infamous. The song's final chord was also played by four people on three pianos and allowed to ring out for 40 seconds, which is also weird. Following that, depending on whether you have the vinyl, the tape, I know tapes were once a thing, or the CD, is some noise akin to the nonsense at the end of Strawberry Fields, only significantly stranger. On the LP version, the needle locks in permanently so that you are left with this noise forever if you don't turn off your player and you never lose your electricity. I had the tape version growing up, so I didn't even know the proper noise at the end for years it's it is i can't remember how different it is anymore but when i grew up the first time i listened to a cd version i was like what the hell is this because it was the noise from the uh vinyl lp and not the tape it's safe to say that a day in the life is one of the most famous non-single rock songs of all time at this point i am a landmark in popular music i don't really know of anything else like it I think Frank Zappa may have broken with convention as much or more so than A Day in the Life, but A Day in the Life still feels like a legitimate song. And much of Frank Zappa's innovation is, of course, just a bunch of song fragments stitched together one after the other after the other. Sgt. Pepper set new standards for recording techniques and song construction and mixing. It did this more so than I think Frank Zappa's work of earlier that year. And it had more influence, of course, because people listened to Sgt. Pepper and they didn't listen to Absolutely Free or Freak Out. It's also notable, I guess, if you care about the Beatles Beach Boys argument, that Sgt. Pepper is credited with killing Smile, which uh, was the follow up to Pet Sounds. Uh, supposedly, as the story goes, Brian Wilson was in the middle of assembling or finishing recording Smile, and he heard Sgt. Pepper 
and had a breakdown. I don't know if this is true. He was also on lots of drugs and he was receiving really, really bad psychiatric treatment from a terrible doctor. So we shouldn't <laughs> take anyone's word for it, but supposedly that's what happened. Sgt. Pepper started the Summer of Love and became the definitive psychedelic album, which is why it's so often attacked by people who claim it's overrated, where some bands merely dabbled in psychedelia, like the Birds, for example, the Beatles had thrown themselves right into the genre and created the definitive work of the era um, and the genre, you could argue. It hasn't dated as well, I think, as m some of other psychedelic music, which is less aggressively weird, and it certainly hasn't dated as well as much of the Beatles' music, but I think it's still safe to say it's one of the milestones in popular music history, um, certainly of the second half of the 20th century. And I think due to his sheer reach, not just artistically, but in terms of sales, we can almost date albums pre-Sgt. Pepper and post-Sgt. Pepper a little bit like we can date pre- and post-electric guitar playing with Jimi Hendrix. And I think that's not nothing. You can quibble all you want about the weakness of some of the songs. On the, if, you, if you were to cover all these songs with an acoustic guitar, some of them wouldn't stand up very well. I think it's safe to say just you a voice and acoustic guitar, some of them wouldn't be the greatest Beatles songs. However. You can't debate the album's influence. This altered the musical worlds of rock music, psychedelic rock, art rock, progressive rock, and, and Baroque pop, all sorts of genres. And I mean, I think it's safe to say that in many ways, the music world was forever changed, in some ways even more so than with Revolver, even though I think personally Revolver is the better album. And I, if, I'm, if you put a gun to my head and say, you have to choose between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's Beatles albums, pick which one you want to listen to. I'm choosing Revolver like 10 times out of 10. But I think the influence of this one is probably broader for, for all the reasons just stated. Do you have any pushback on that or anything? Um, no, I don't. I, I, like, I, I think it would be a very difficult argument to make at this point, especially at this point in their career with these albums that these weren't hugely influential albums. I don't know anyone who would really say that Sgt. Pepper's was not an influential album in all, like, or at least not honestly make that argument. Sure. Yeah, I think people have made that argument facetiously. Yes. Yeah. But no, it's, it's definitely a massively influential album for sure. I mean, even just like you think about all the kids in university who had the Sgt. Pepper's poster on their wall just because that was yep. what you had on your wall. Yeah. Because of what, and, and what this album started to represent it with the psychedelic movement and everyone read um, that Huxley book. Yeah. Brave New World. New World. Yep. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, 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 it just was like you know, you moved out. You're in dorm room. It's the starter pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, I, I don't think anyone can that can um, really make that make that argument that it's not. But I think it's also something that you can sit there at a very surface level and see what it was for something very different. And okay, that's kind of fun. Whatever, whatever, whatever. But then as you start to go deeper into the album you start to maybe open up some layers that you didn't know you didn't necessarily notice before uh, like with going through some of these albums and some of these tracks this time around there's just there's definitely things that i just i didn't notice when i first listened to them years ago that i'm hearing in the artwork now that definitely makes it seem more impactful in my head one of the things Does that makes sense yeah, it does. And you mentioned earlier headphones. And I think, honestly, if you've never listened to Sgt. If you like Sgt. Pepper and you've never listened to it on headphones, you should listen to it on headphones because 
There is a lot, Some, especially in being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, uh, good morning, good morning, getting better. There is a lot of shit going on in the mix, like mm. an aggressive amount that was just not heard of prior to this record. Like, this has got to be one of the more densely mixed records that had existed up to this point, right? Like, it was, yes. you it's didn't have dense. backing noise previously, right? You had like, you had your guitar, your bass, your drums, maybe a second guitar or a keyboard. You have your vocal. You maybe have a couple backing vocals. In the case of the Beach Boys, you had these uh, with pet sounds. You had really, really dense backing vocals. You know, they'd like have these. The Beatles did this too, but you have like all these vocal tracks layered on top of each other for the backing or group vocals. But you didn't really do that with instruments very much. In fact, often with like with orchestras and stuff, it was all you know. You'd have this all uh, this huge, huge number of instruments on on one track. You know, even with the the string arrangements on this record, I believe they're mostly confined to one track. But then you have these other tracks where it's like you've got just, for lack of a better word, stuff, you know, stuck in there. Well, and, whatever and, it is. And, and there are definitely points in the album where it is just a wall of sound that hits you. Mm-hmm. Unlike, unlike something, unlike something that you probably, if you were experiencing it, you know, in the late '60s, it was something that you wouldn't have experienced before. Like yeah. just that much noise coming at you. I mean, like stereo was probably a relatively new innovation Yeah, that hadn't been fully explored. Like now when people talk about stereo separation and blah, blah, everyone in their dog has played around with panning and yeah, breaking things out and doing all this, all this course and stuff, but all that had to come from somewhere. And like, even when we were, I've heard a day in the life a million times. And even when we were sitting there listening to the ascending part, I was just like, Jesus, they really are. <laughs> those musicians are just like going at it. And just like, it is just this immense, like you said, wall of sound of just like yeah. a whole bunch of people just playing. And it's like, it's, it's one of those things where I think headphones really do make an impact. I mean, mm-hmm. the other thing you, I guess you could do is if you're in a, in a relatively soundproof room, you could just turn it way, way up too. I think the advantage that headphones bring to, bring to that party specifically or really any album listening party is you get the, you get the stereo imaging perfectly. Yeah. And doing that with speakers is really difficult. Like I've listened to a lot of stuff in my life and like some of it's whatever, like there's a bunch of punk albums that, Ooh, stereo, who cares? Yeah. That's not what it's about. Um, But there are, there are other albums where, the stereo separation is super important for what's going on musically. Yeah. And you lose. And if you're in a room with speakers that are turned up, if you're not, you know, sitting uh, in the right spot, sitting in the right spot and the room is not reflecting all the sounds the right way. Yeah. It's gone. You, you lose the effect. You yeah. lose that, that effect entirely. And so I, I think the one thing that I've really enjoyed about the re like revisiting the music throughout this project is it's made me like sit down and listen to albums with headphones on again that I don't always do. Yeah. Or at least, you know, like you don't always sit down and listen to listen. Like you put headphones on while you're cooking dinner or you're doing some reports, you're doing some work, whatever, or you're working on something, but you're not really like sitting there concentrating on the music and all most of your brain power is into a set of headphones. And like, especially with this album, that's needed. If you don't do that, you're 
leaving a lot on the table that you've just you've missed out on now. Yeah, and I think when when people have attacked Sergeant Pepper as like the sort of like nadir of British psychedelia or psychedelic music or popular yeah. music, because like there was a uh, I don't remember if it was in the nineties or in the aughts, but there was like a British magazine that wanted to make itself notable. So they picked Sgt. Pepper as the worst album of all time, you know, for example, and they did that on purpose to get attention. It's the only reason they did it. But I think anybody who was in that room arguing that that was true likely has never sat down and listened to the record on headphones, you know? Yeah. I like, and, I, I like, I don't know how you could, I don't know how you can make that argument. In, oh, you can't in good faith. Like, no, I, you're not. They was do they were doing it to get attention, right? Like they were, yeah. you know, it was typical British press. Like they love they the British music press do all sorts of insane things. Like proclaiming proclaiming new albums the greatest album of all time regularly. I used to NME used to do that all the time. No, I, I understand that it's not really a good faith argument, but I still think like even if you were going to try and maintain it, I feel like you can't have actually like listened to the amount of care and attention that went into this which like was mostly unrivaled at this point. You know, I think you could, there's a very short list of records that had, that people had spent this much time on prior to this. And I would on that short list would be revolver, uh, pet sounds and, and maybe freak out. And like, that's basically it, you know, like this, I don't know how many hours in the studio they were to make this record, but it was a lot. Like even going back and reading through, um, that one record, and that one record, that one track for um, Strawberry Fields. Yeah, like the amount of production and effort that went into that, yeah. to that one, one song. Like having, yeah. like having done, spent time in like a, a demo studio and such. I was reading how much time and how many takes, everything else, and I was just like, I would, I would die. Yeah, yeah. that long on one song. Yeah, like I would just be like, no, nah, we're 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 done. This well, is- it's, Good Vibrations was the same way. It took months to make. And the thing is, these songs just came out and nobody nobody knew that at the time, right? There wasn't yeah. this kind of documentary evidence about it. They just came out. And so all the listener got was the the shock of like, I've never heard anything like this before. And none of how the sausage was made. And, you know, of, of course, this, both Good Vibrations and Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane and also Sgt. Pepper would spawn legion of imitators, but they all had to learn how to do it, or they had to find the right people to help them do it. And, and I think one of the reasons why psychedelic music for a time, in the 70s in particular, had such a bad reputation is because there were a whole bunch of people who sort of wanted to get that Sgt. Pepper or Strawberry Field sound, but didn't put all the effort in, you know? Yeah, and and instead just were like, well, hey, this sounds vaguely Indian, maybe a little bit, or Eastern, or 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 groovy, or whatever, and like, but like wouldn't put all that time in, and so you get this like you know avalanche of sort of wannabe, you know, everybody was trying to look like the Beatles, and sound like the Beatles, or sound like Good Vibrations, and like immediately after, which is one of the reasons, like you got some some uh, reaction to it, some pushback, right? People got sick of this eventually. And I mean, as we will discuss very soon, the Beatles got sick of it really quickly. They actually moved on faster than I think most people realize. But that's for a later time. <laughs> 